And now on WRS, Michael McKay with the McKay Interview. Hello everyone. Formula One racing captures the imagination and attention of millions worldwide. There's no doubt about that. And today here in the comfortable surroundings of Geneva's Hotel Richemont, I'm in the presence of one of the greats of motor racing. So Jackie Stewart won the Formula One World Championship in 1969, 1971 and 1973 and 27 Grand Prix Championship victories. Those were past times when driving racing cars was very different from today, and today is the nearest that I've ever come to being with a living legend. We have just finished a very successful business lunch and speech to the British Swiss Chamber of Commerce, and we're here relaxing for a few minutes before he takes his flight back to London. So Jackie, welcome to the McKay interview, and thank you for making the time to talk to me and through me, all our listeners in the Geneva region, throughout Switzerland and beyond. Well, very nice to be in Geneva. Um, I travel a lot, but of course I still have a home in Switzerland, and I do part of my living in the United Kingdom, but I suppose I'm more in, in the air than anywhere else. Great. Look, we've only got about 10 or 15 minutes, but there are many things and issues which fascinate me as a layman with no in-depth knowledge of motor racing. So let me start with my first question. It's about the perception of risk. How have perceptions of risk, from the point of view of drivers the car companies, the constructors, and spectators changed from the 60s and 70s when you were racing at the highest level compared with today. And what has brought about that change in perception of risk? Well, at a certain period, there was the belief that if you're a racing driver, you're prepared to take the risk. And if you die, um, then that is part of the business. If you don't want to do that, then why don't you get out? If the kitchen's too hot, you should leave it. I was very much against that, and one of the things that I'm perhaps most proud of in my motor racing uh, time or career has been my recognition of things had to change. We had to change. It would have been potentially, in my opinion, a death row eventually because insurance companies would not allow motor racing to take place if we had continued to kill not only drivers but potentially mm. spectators and officials alike. But were you alone in that or were there people that did support you even if they weren't as powerful To begin as you? with, pretty solular in that mm. respect. But there was a thing called the Grand Prix Drivers Association mm. and we managed to get together with considerable amount of influence and power. We in fact closed the Nürburgring in Germany because they refused at that time not to even do one request that we had to them in improving a safety issue or removing an unnecessary hazard. So this was late, late 60s, this early 70s? The, the, about 70, 1970. 70, yeah. My movement started in about 68 or 69 mm -hmm. and because I was winning world championships from that point on, then I had, let's say, a bigger voice with the media, whether it be through radio, television or print, because there were no websites then. Yeah, sure. So it, it really started to happen around that period, and we closed the Spa-Francorchamps racetrack. The other great, iconic racetrack in the world, Spa mm -hmm. and the Nürburgring, were both closed because they refused to do anything. When they realised there was a strong movement in that direction, and the risk that they couldn't afford to take in a racetrack being closed because they couldn't get insurance policies, for example, uh, to cover everybody. 
They hadn't done enough. Mm. By 1976, Nicky Lauda had a big accident, yeah, also at the Nurburgring, and the track was closed then, never to be reopened for Formula One cars. You can go and drive at the Nurburgring, you can race at the Nurburgring in different categories of the sport, but not Formula One, which of course is the fastest. I see, I see, okay. Well, my second question is a natural one for... A non-expert, I suppose, and I guess even experts would ask this question. And it's sort of an Usain Bolt question. How fast or how much faster can a Formula One racing car actually go safely? Well, they've been saying or asking questions like that since they took away the red flag from the horseless carriage. <laughs> okay. um, man and machine grow together. And man learns to take a machine to higher speeds, cornering speeds as well as in a straight line. The technologists involved make it happen in a more comfortable and a safer fashion. So I don't think there is a limit. Uh, but regulations come in and then you have a regulatory body saying this corner is now too fast because if the wrong thing were to happen, the dynamics of the accident would potentially affect the general public, the spectators. Mm. So we'll slow down the car. So we either put a little chicane in there to slow the cars down, or there's a new regulation limiting certain downforce aerodynamically or engineeringly. So the regulatory body, which is the Fédération Internationale Automobile, the mm -hmm. FIA, um, put new regulations in to try and avoid the sort of circumstance that could, if it weren't otherwise dealt with, uh, occurring. But just in numerical terms, for those people who don't follow the sport so closely, give us an idea of the sort of average speeds that you were doing in your day in the late 60s compared with the sort of stuff the, the modern drivers, the young drivers are doing these days in these new cars. Average speeds. Well, if you were in Monaco hmm. doing the Grand Prix, the average speed might have been 80 miles an hour or mm, 75 miles an hour. It's not any higher than that today yeah. because they've put in other corners to slow the cars down oh, so see. that the okay. wrong accidents mm. do not happen. Mm. But if you were talking about two cars in one corner that was still there, I would be going round that corner and braking at something like 150 to 180 metres from the corner. The current Grand Prix car, the driver would be braking at 50 metres. Wow, that's a huge So it would be carrying, in some cases, let's say... 300 kilometres per hour approaching there, where I was braking at 180 metres, mm. they're braking at 50. So therefore, the, to allow that to happen, the downforce, the car is being sucked onto the road, and therefore the brakes are better too. Mm. So the, the energy gets, gets used up and, in fact, reforms in the car mm -hmm. to use to even get better performance. I understand. So... Um, it's difficult to say the cornering speeds themselves would be much faster today than in my day but uh, that's progress but on the other hand my day was much faster than the 60s or the 70s mm. excuse me the 60s mm. 
or just after World War II, mm. or before the war, where it was Caracciola and Nuvolari were driving, mm. and their cars were light years different than the ones that Sterling Moss drove, which was much different than the ones I drove, which were different what Alan Prost, Ayrton Senna, Michael Schumacher drove, and today Sebastian Vettel drives. Mm. So the engineering technology that's been transferred has been of huge benefit to the motor industry mm. and to safety. I see. Well, the way you've led me on to the, the next question I have, which also fascinates me, because I know there's a debate about this, and that is, what in your view has to be done to keep the sport interesting and attract new spectators and new investors, or isn't that a problem? Well, first of all, the sport is uh, more popular today than it's ever been in the history. Measured by s s live spectators or television audiences or both? Well, first of all, the spectator numbers on television are enormous. Yeah. It's the largest television sport in the world Even more than football. on an annual basis. Yeah. It's bigger than the Olympics or the Soccer World Cup because they're only every four years. Yeah. Okay. We race almost every two weeks from March right through to the end of November. So that's one thing. Secondly, the whole world is now motorised. So now we're getting more people driving cars, whether they're coming out of the jungle or off of the desert, they're going straight into a motorised world. China now has the largest motorised community in the world. India is very big as well, as well as obviously sure. the United States. But if you get more people driving cars, you get more people enthusiastic about driving and enthusiastic about motor cars. And therefore... Uh, we have very good crowd attendances as well as television and other forms of media today. And my other question, which I guess you must have been asked a lot, particularly by people a generation younger than you, you've lived a long life, an exciting life. In terms of your professional life as a racing car driver, do you look back on the 60s and 70s as the good old days or the bad old days, as, as far as motor racing is concerned? Well, most people who come and speak to me uh, about it, they, their sort of memory lane is slightly um, out of focus. Mm -hmm. And they think that my days were the good old days. Yes, I can understand And they that. were indeed just what you remarked. They were indeed the bad old, bad old days, days. Because if I raced for five years at that time, there was a two out of three chance I was going to die. That's staggering. And only a one out of three I was going to survive. Mm. And that's a hideous statistic that any sport should not have. So that's why change was accelerated and that's why today, um, as we speak, uh, it's been 19 years, seven months, maybe eight months, um, nine months even, and something like uh, 10 days since we lost the life of a Grand Prix driver. That's and amazing. that was Ayrton Senna. Uh, at Imola. And a generation ago, the statistics were totally different. Uh, and now we've got probably the best example of risk management of any industry, of any sport, or any corporation in the world. Mm. So we have put our house in order. That doesn't mean to say there will not be a fatality. Yeah, but you see the huge accidents we have in Formula One, and the drivers survive yeah. because of the technology. We're very lucky that our technology is associated with such big industries, whether it's fuel and oil, whether it's tyre manufacturers, or whether it's car producers. They're all contributing to new generations of thinking sure. of how you can make things safer. Sure. So, Jackie, thank you for making the time this afternoon. I know you've got a lot to do and pack and then get back to the airport, but it's been a privilege speaking to you. My pleasure. That was the McKay Interview. 
with Michael McKay. And don't forget, you can hear that interview again on our website, worldradio.ch.